Hi everyone, I'm Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and I have been a space and astronomy journalist for over 20 years. Now, the format on this channel is I answer a bunch of questions, I interview a bunch of people, but there's a lot of news that is happening, breaking all the time in space and astronomy, and we're just like not bringing it up apart from interviewing people. So we thought we would add a new segment to the show. This is just an experiment. So really give us your feedback, tell us what you think, but I'm going to cover a lot of the news that, you know, I'm having to process this news as I run Universe Today, as I write my newsletter, as I talk to scientists, and it's all kind of in my head. And I figure, you know, some people like to read a newsletter, and some people like to have the newsletter videoed at them. So uh, this is a video segment on the news. All right, the first news item is that the US Space Force has released a trove of data on bolides and fireballs. And Space Force, I'm sure you're all aware, right? This is the uh, mashed together various departments of the military, the US military, Air Force, Army, etc. that's going to provide space reconnaissance and satellites and so on. And they have been tracking essentially satellite debris, anything that's going on in space. And one of the byproducts of this is that they have been tracking fireballs, meteoroids hitting the Earth's atmosphere and they've been storing this data. And in the last week or so, they decided they were gonna release all of this data to scientists so that they can use it for their own scientific exploration. And now they've been tracking these bolides and fireballs since 1988. And then they decided to release, it's about a thousand events into the hands of researchers. And this is really important because we know that the Earth is in this like cosmic shooting gallery. There are meteors and asteroids out there all the time hitting the Earth's atmosphere. One of them could be a lot worse. And the more data that astronomers can get, the more they're going to be able to get a sense of what our risks are going into the future. And so having this data go from Space Force to the scientists is a really good thing. All right, so the next piece of news is that physicists have measured the W boson and what they measured doesn't exactly match the standard model of particle physics. So what's going on? Now, bosons are a way to communicate forces between various objects. So the photon is the boson for the electromagnetic force. There's a bunch for the strong force. And the W boson is one that translates force for the weak nuclear force. And it has been fairly well measured in the past, but now physicists at Fermilab have used the collider detector to measure the W boson with incredible precision. Now, the theorized mass for the W boson is 80,357 mega electron volts plus or minus six. And they measured it at 80,433 mega electron volts plus or minus nine MeV. Now, those numbers sound almost exactly the same and they're very, very close. But the problem is that the error bars for those two measurements don't overlap. And so essentially their measurement does not line up with a very careful estimate for what it should be according to the laws of, of physics as we understand them today. Now, what could be going on? One possibility, of course, is that there's an error in measurement that the machine gave the wrong number, there was some extra noise in the signal, and they weren't able to measure the number as accurately as they needed to. 
But the other possibility is that our understanding of the laws of physics are incomplete. And we know that. I mean, we know that you can't take quantum mechanics and gravity and mash them together. They just are incompatible. They're oil and water. And yet, obviously, we live in a universe. The laws of physics seem to happen. You can both experience gravity and the quantum mechanic level. So what's going on? And right now, nobody knows. The one possibility is that it's just an error, it'll get worked out. The other possibility is that it is this crack, it's this opportunity to understand more about the laws of physics and maybe start to push research towards being able to finally merge these various incompatible forces, according to our theories. Now, this is just sort of a tiny version, I did a much more in depth interview with Dr. Paul Sutter, who is a particle physicist by training. And we spent about half an hour going into the depths of this. And actually, this is very similar to a result that we had about a year back for the muon G minus two experiment. And in fact, during that I had Paul come and explain that one to me. So we'll put a link in the show notes, you can definitely check out that interview, the one we just did, and just get excited about how particle physics are still moving forward. Next, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite space telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope. We've been watching the ongoing progress of James Webb. It launched back in December. And now here we are in April, and it's still getting ready. We've seen all of its parts unfurl all of its actuators work perfectly. And so far, like every single part of this telescope has gone exactly according to plan. With the sun shield out, it's been able to cool itself down to about 40 Kelvin or 40 degrees above absolute zero. And this has allowed it to test out all of its instruments, except for one. And that one is called Miri, it's the mid infrared instrument. And Miri needs to be a lot colder It needs to be below seven Kelvin. And this week, engineers at NASA announced that they've been able to get the instrument down to 6.4 Kelvin, which is even colder than necessary. And so you're probably wondering, like, why does this instrument have to be so cold? And it's because it is observing in the infrared. And so when you're observing objects that are just giving off a tiny little bit of heat, you want to minimize the amount of additional heat that's coming from your instrument, from your telescope, from your surroundings, that would interfere with your signal. And so they've got a special helium coolant that runs on this one instrument that gets it a lot colder than the rest of the space telescope. So now that Miri is online, essentially all of the main instruments on board James Webb are ready to go. And now we're really getting closer, we're probably just a couple of months before those we'll see those first proper science images coming from James Webb, your patience will be rewarded. Alright, so the next news comes from the space tourism field. And there's a company called space perspective, and they're building a balloon that will carry you to the stratosphere about 30 kilometers altitude. And unlike say Virgin Galactic or Blue Origin, which are rockets, and take you up very quickly, they give you a few minutes of zero gravity, and then they return to Earth. With space perspective, you will fly in this balloon up to 30 kilometers altitude, it'll take several hours, and then the balloon will come back down somewhere in the ocean, and it'll be retrieved. And they released pictures of what the lounge is going to look like. And so it's pretty cool. Like you think about it, you're going to be sitting in this fairly spacious lounge in a very comfortable seat, you will fly up to this very high altitude, you'll get an incredible view of the earth, even be able to see the curvature of the earth, which hopefully will shut up the flat earthers. 
Um, and then you will be able to come back down. There was going to be like a bar on board. There's a bathroom, snacks. It sounds like a very civilized way to appreciate that really high view of the earth. And like, I'm hoping that you'll even be able to get a that overview effect, this experience that astronauts get when they fly to space, when they look back down on the earth and they see the curvature of the earth, it gives them just this sense that we live on this one world, that there aren't national borders. And so if there's a way that regular folks can take flights on this balloon, now it's going to start at $125,000 per flight. So obviously that's not exactly regular people, but it's cheaper than the 55 million that it costs to fly to the International Space Station. So it's a good start. And I got to say, if I could fly on Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic or this, I would take this. You know, if I wanted zero gravity, I'd fly in the vomit comet. But to be able to just see the Earth from a really high point of view for a long period of time, I I would be tempted to try a flight on this when they bring the price down or, or give me a free trip. Now, the altitude isn't quite as high as you're going to get with Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic. You're only going to 30 kilometers, not say 100 kilometers. You're not crossing the Kármán line, but you are still going to get that really great view. Ah, it just feels a lot more civilized. So. Is it space tourism? I'm going to say yes, because you're definitely going higher than on an airplane or any way to get there normally on Earth. But you decide. Now, we did a pretty cool discussion about space tourism on our Discord server, and we do one of these every week on Wednesdays. And so if you want, join the Discord server. There'll be a link in the show notes. And you can join us on Wednesdays for this cool conversation about different ideas in space and astronomy, and not just like a podcast, but actually a discussion where you can talk to me and the rest of the people listening and have the back and forth. And it's a lot of fun. So check it out on our discord server. Next story is that scientists are working on technology that will allow Martian astronauts to be able to make their own fuel from their wastewater from their showers from their toilets, etc. And as you probably know, when you fly to another place, whenever you fly out into space, the mass is incredibly critical. It's enormously expensive to carry any kind of mass into orbit. And so the more you can recycle or gather it locally, the better it's going to be. And so this technology, in theory, will allow water that has sort of run out of uses, they they've recycled as much as they can for drinking for coffee for things like that. And then they can still process it one more time and turn it into fuel that then they could run uh, hydrogen fuel cells for their for their station, or maybe even like break it up into hydrogen and oxygen, use it for propellant. So there's a lot of cool ideas. And so you can see there's just there's so much of this technology that people are going to have to come up with to make living in these really inhospitable places like Mars, like the moon, like deep space. And each incremental technology that can be figured out will make this more successful. And so anticipate thousands more technologies like this are going to have to be developed. We got a cool picture from NASA this week. It was from the Perseverance rover that finally saw its own parachute and back shell. Now when Perseverance launched about like over a year ago, uh, it had a pretty cool parachute. And you've probably seen that it had this encoded message on the parachute that when you decoded it said dare mighty things. Uh, then the parachute dropped onto the surface of Mars and 
Perseverance began its operations. Now, normally, NASA will send the rover back to its landing system to take a bunch of pictures. But in this case, there's a lot of fairly dangerous terrain in between where Perseverance was and where the parachute and back shell ended up. And so it took this fairly circuitous route and finally got within striking distance of the parachute and, and back shell. And hopefully we'll get some better pictures shortly. Speaking of rovers, the European Space Agency has been testing out rover ideas to explore the South Pole of the Moon. And of course, the South Pole of the Moon is of great interest to really all the space agencies. When we go back to the Moon, probably most of the missions are going to end up at the South Pole because that's where there could be permanently shadowed craters containing water ice. And water ice is going to be this fantastic resource for propellant for oxygen for the astronauts to breathe for kind of so many purposes, water to drink, etc. And so we have to know if these craters are truly filled with water, can it be harvested? What's it going to take? And so the European Space Agency has built this testing facility, where it is 200 tons of simulated lunar regolith. And then they've put meter sized boulders strewn across this landscape, and then a bunch of smaller obstacles as well. And they've invited 12 teams to build prototype rovers that can rove around in this area, navigate around the known hazards, these bigger rocks, but also deal with smaller surprises that that the space agency has put into this field. And they are looking to map it out and to essentially acquire resources that are located in this giant field. And they started with 12 concepts, they've now narrowed the group down to five, and they're going to be getting a prize and additional funding to continue developing their concepts so that as the humans as the robots return to the South Pole of the moon, we're going to have better understanding better methods to find those resources on the moon if they're there. And that should make living on the moon just a little bit easier. Now, if you want to support the work that we do on universe today, you should join our Patreon, go to patreon.com slash universe today, you will get access to behind the scenes, no ads on universe today for life, as well as access to videos ahead of time and some cool ways to communicate and discuss with the rest of the community. And also just to support the work that we do on universe today to bring news to the public. So if that's something that you're interested in, go to patreon.com slash universe today. And the last story is that a bunch of Apollo 11 moon dust went for auction in the last week. Now, this is kind of never happened before all of the samples that were brought back during across all of the Apollo missions were taken care of very carefully by NASA. And in fact, they've been opening up some sealed packages of these samples over the last couple of years, as modern equipment has been able to catch up. But there was like a little bit of a loophole. When Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon back in Apollo 11, he had this special sample bag on his pants. And the goal here was that the first thing he would do within the first few minutes of being on the moon, he would scoop up a little bit of regolith, tuck it into this pocket, and then they would continue on with their mission. But if there was some problem, they weren't able to get their samples, they could evacuate the moon, come back to Earth, and at least they would still have some lunar material that could be studied back here on Earth. Now, of course, the missions were fine, they were able to come back home. And so this wasn't a priority. And then the 
sample bag was cleaned out mostly, and then it was sold um, privately. And then it ended up on an auction site and someone picked it up for $995 and was sort of noticing that there was still like a little bit of dust inside this sample bag had it analyzed. And it turns out that it was indeed from the moon. Now, the bag has since been resold on auction. And now this tiny little amount of lunar dust just sold for a little over half a million dollars. So it's like one of the only private ways that a person can get a sample of the moon, which is pretty cool. All right, well, those I think were the top stories of this week. So again, this is just a new experiment, you know, we're always trying new ideas. So please let us know what you think. Did I not have enough news? Did I spend too much time not going to enough detail? Let me know what you think. All of this news that I covered here today, these are stories that we're reporting on Universe Today. And there's way more stories on Universe Today as well. But we know that if you want to be able to get audio, you can listen to the podcast. If you want to be able to read them in your email newsletter box, you can. And if you want to read them on the website, you can. And now, if you want them in video form, that's what we're doing here. So definitely go and subscribe to the option that you like the best. And it goes without saying, definitely like, subscribe, comment, all the things that help the YouTube algorithm find our videos and spread them to a wider audience. It makes a big difference when you do this. So thank you for supporting what we do. And I will see you next week.